Uh, it's so good to uh, be together again. And uh, uh, it's not the same when you're not here. We miss you. We wish you could be with us. Uh, there's something about the body in the same room, fellowship, uh, eating food together, talking, laughing, and studying together. So you're missed. But uh, we're going to get started, and, and it sure it's good to have each of you here tonight. Uh, we're gonna, tonight's going to be a little different. We're not going to uh, be in our in our verse by verse study. Uh, the last couple weeks, we've been looking at big questions, and the one we dealt with on Wednesday night is uh, why does God, uh, you know, allow evil and suffering in the world? Why does a loving God allow evil and suffering? Well, we're done with that. I don't want to go any further with that. I want to switch it up and. Uh, we put a box in the Sunday morning service back on the back table for people to put in a, a little question that they might have about something in the Bible or, uh, or how does the Bible speak to this particular issue today. And so I, I went through everything we had and I wrote them all down. And so I just got those listed out here and we're going to do that tonight. We're going to go through and there will be a lot of pages turning with the Bible because any answers we give need to come from the Word of God, right? So that'll be the focus. Uh, why don't we go ahead and begin with prayer? I want to welcome each of you again, and uh, let's, let's, let's remember those who can't be with us, lift them up before the Lord. Well, Father, tonight as the church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia, those who are called out of darkness and into your marvelous light, we gather. And what a joy it is to gather together. Your, your word says, don't forsake the assembly together as some are in the habit of doing. Your desire is that we would be one and that we would be in fellowship, in proximity to one another so that when someone's hurting, we can put an arm around them. Uh, we can bend a knee and pray for them. When, when someone is joyful and celebrative, we are able to clap in their presence and, and with a smile on our face, uh, join them in the joy that they're experiencing. And, and we're just thankful that as the body, this is the way you designed the church to function. You, don't, you didn't save us to make us islands. You saved us to be a community. And so we're thankful. Lord, tonight we invite your Holy Spirit to uh, really illuminate our minds and allow us to understand the text and what we're reading, and, and to really be able from Scripture to come to conclusions that are righteous in your eyes. And uh, be with those that cannot be here tonight. Some might be watching by live stream. Others are un even unable to do that. So we pray that you would watch over them, protect them. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. And you, you said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. I know everything about them, and they follow me. So tonight, Lord, may you come near to those who are brokenhearted, near to those who are hurting, near to those who are coming to the end of themselves and turning back to you, away from sin and towards Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I'm gonna, let me just first list the questions that we'll try to address tonight. I, I don't think we're going to get through all of these because um, some of the answers I want to take our time with. I don't want to rush through the answer.
But let me just tell you what came in the box. I didn't add anything to these. I didn't change the questions. I'm telling you this is what people wrote, so we're going to deal with it, okay? Uh, someone said, please, uh, they said, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.10, some Christians use that passage to justify doing miracles and casting out demons, basically doing the sign gifts. Where is there proof in the Bible that people don't really do those things today? John 14, 12 is another verse used to justify their actions. And another verse is Acts 2, 17. Let me give you those three verses so we, you know the context of what we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And they're using that to say that's the reason why today Christians should be using the sign gifts. Okay? Um, that, that is a, to use it for that purpose is to completely misappropriate that passage of Scripture. That passage is talking about the death and the suffering of Christ and that we take on, just as we take on His suffering, we also take on His life. Jesus is alive today, amen? While He did suffer, He's not suffering now and, and that's the life He promises us. So it has nothing to do with using certain gifts today. Then the second ver uh, chapter or verse that they quoted was John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And so we have to put that passage in context to understand how to properly use it, and we'll do that tonight here in the first question. And then the last verse that they're using to justify doing miracles and casting out demons and the sign gifts is Acts, like speaking in tongues, those kinds of things. Acts 2.17, where it says, and it's a quote from the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So we'll explain that too. So let's go. Uh, that's just the first one. We're going to deal with it. Before we deal with it, let me give you the rest of the questions, okay? The next one is, please explain grace. I'm glad they made such an easy question to answer. It just made it so easy for me. Uh, we're not going to cover that one tonight because in two weeks... The big question on Sunday morning will be, how do I know I'm saved? Can I fall from grace? So to explain that question and answer it, we'll also deal with grace itself. So we'll hold that until then. Here's another one. Does the Bible say anything about cremation? Is it wrong for a Christian to consider cre being cremated? Another what attributes of God did Jesus empty himself of when he became a man? Another question, when and where is the kingdom of heaven? Another, is it biblical to ask the Spirit to enter this place or come into this room when the Spirit is already indwelling the believer? Is this for non-believers to sense the Spirit? Okay. The next question, 
they said, I have struggled my whole life with whether I was truly saved when I was 12. I was very rebellious in my 20s. Was I really saved at 12? Why did I struggle after I was saved? Am I saved now? Okay, that we're going to hold for that same Sunday in two weeks, if that's okay. Because those are very similar. They'll, they'll carry one, they'll, they'll dovetail together. And here's the last question that was submitted. How do we respond to Bill Gates' depopulation agenda from a Christian worldview? So let's get started again tonight. I'm not sure we'll cover all of them. And if you have any other questions, write them down. Give them to me when we leave tonight. And we'll come back and finish what we don't cover tonight and add the ones that you have. Okay? So let's get started. First, are the sign gifts still in operation today? And really, to get to the answer to that question, we have to ask, what was the purpose of the sign gifts in the New Testament? For what purpose did God give signs to Christians to use in the New Testament? And so that's the beginning point. So when we speak of biblical sign gifts, we're talking about doing acts of miracles, the, uh, speaking in tongues, visions, healings, uh, raising the dead, prophesying, casting out demons, all of that. Um, and where disagreement arises, because I don't think anybody disagrees that every bit of that was done in the New Testament, right? Jesus did it through the Gospels, and then He gave authority to His disciples, who were the apostles, they did. And so we, we don't question that. The disagreement comes with whether or not those sign gifts are still in operation today. So let me just take you on a biblical journey here, okay? Let's, let's do a little historical gathering here. Uh, one of the earliest references to sign gifts in the Bible is found in Exodus chapter 4. You don't have to turn, but just write it down. Exodus 4, that's when Moses is being instructed by God about the impending deliverance from Egypt. Uh, Moses worried that the people would not believe that God sent him, so God gave him signs of the rod becoming a snake, remember that? Or the sign of his hand becoming leprous. Okay, those were sign gifts. And God said that these gifts, here's what he said at the time. Uh, he said in verse 5 of Exodus 4, that they may believe that those who see these sign gifts, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, may believe the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, uh, had, that he has, I'm sorry, is for the Jews, that they would believe that God actually raised Moses up to be the deliverer. So that in order for them to believe, because Moses could just go up and say, hey, God's told me that I'm supposed to deliver you. And they're going to go, uh, yeah, right. But because he's doing these gifts, now all of a sudden they go, whoa, that's not him. That's God. So we need to listen to what he's saying. Okay? So God gave Moses miraculous sign gifts. But he also gave gifts to show the Egyptians, to show Pharaoh, right? Look at the plagues. Okay? Look at all the things that happened. So, so again, why? So that they would know that it is God Himself wanting His people released from bondage. There was a reason behind it, okay? Now, 
uh, Elijah. We go forward a little bit in the Bible. You're going to get into 1 Kings chapter 18. We, we've studied this, right? By the way, the reason I'm sitting, I've got some really good news today. Man, I'm so, so excited about it. Um, since uh, I came out of the hospital um, and I had lost a considerable amount of weight, uh, on that Friday after, my doctor, my cardiologist, took me off of one pill completely, and then he cut another pill in half. And at that time, I told him I've been lightheaded, and I'm checking my blood pressure, and it's low. And so today, they called and said, uh, you, the doctor said, uh, you need to stop taking blood pressure medicine altogether. Isn't that something? So I even held off till noon to take my morning medication, so I didn't have to take that pill, and they didn't call until like, two in the afternoon, so I'm going to be a little loopy, lightheaded for another 24 to 36 hours, I probably, you know, and then I should start seeing a change. By Sunday, I should be back to the same old Greg. I'm sorry about that. I am very sorry about that, but that's, that's where I'm headed, okay? But right now, I'm still just a little lightheaded, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to fall out and you think that it was the Spirit knocking me out. Um, I don't think that's going to happen tonight, but anyway, uh, not that way. Um, okay, so, so now we have Elijah, and he confronted the false prophets of Baal, remember? And here's what he did. He prayed to God that, that God would miraculously send fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice that he had created on the altar, which he had drenched with water. And God did it. And here's what Elijah prayed. You are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. That Here's why. Here's why I'm asking for the sign gift. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. So, the miracles he and other prophets performed throughout that part of the Scripture were always a confirmation that God had sent the prophets and that God was at work in Israel in their midst, okay? Again, there is a purpose behind the gifts being used in the Old Testament. You come to, to the prophet Joel. He was given a message of God's judgment on Israel, and within that message was a prophecy that mercy and hope was going to come to Israel. And when the judgment came as prophesied and the people responded with repentance, God said that He would then remove the judgments and restore the blessing. And here's what He said, Joel 2.27, if you want to write it down. He said, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else or none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So God's giving them a sign to remind them that even though I judged you and you struggled and suffered, now I'm going to bring mercy to you. And I want you to know that I'm the one doing this and that I'm in your midst. And I don't want you to forget what I'm about to do. So he gave them a sign. And here's what it says, uh, uh, that in that day, uh, well, actually, I'm going to go over and read it from the Acts chapter 2. Okay, we'll go there in a second. 
But immediately that statement, uh, God speaks about pouring out His Spirit on the people. So they would prophesy, they would see visions, they would see signs and wonders happening. So now, moving forward to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the disciples began speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. What was the purpose? That the people would know the message brought by Peter and the others, that it was God's message. And who's he, who, did they, who did they speak in tongues in the presence of? The Jews. So this is actually the, the fulfillment of Joel, of the Joel chapter 2, verse 27 passage that the people would know the message brought by Peter that day as he preached, that they would receive it because of the sign, and others would be saved. And, of course, that day 3,000 people were saved. So now let's move forward from there. How about, how about oh, let's go back a little bit. Jesus' ministry, uh, he, Jesus' whole ministry was accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. Does anybody disagree with that? Uh, marvelous works of God, you know, taking five loaves and two fish and feeding 20 plus thousand people. Man, oh man. But what was the purpose of all of these miracles? Well, in John chapter 10, write it down, John 10, 37 and 38, Jesus was responding to the Jews who wanted to stone him for blasphemy, and this is what he said. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So all the miracles, the works, was to help those who heard the message to believe that Jesus was God that He was in the Father, and the Father, God Himself, was in Jesus. Okay? Now, here's the point. Listen, I, I am not going to belittle or, or um, try to put down those who practice sign gifts today. They have their reasons for doing that. So I want to show respect to those believers. By the way, I believe they'll be in heaven. They have as much right in heaven as we do. Amen? So we're not going to do that. But based on the Scripture, just like in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, just like in the Gospels where Jesus performed miracles, it was always to confirm God's hand on His messenger or messengers. Whether it was Moses, prophets, Joel, with a prophetic word, all the prophets. Jesus, or the apostles. And when I say apostles, I'm talking about those who, who, the, who met the criteria in the Bible for being an apostle. They had to be with Jesus. So, so that was the purpose. Everything you, listen to me now, let me just say this. Everything you see, Old and New Testament, about sign gifts, it's always to make clear that God is behind 
the one who is doing it. That's the messenger. Listen to what they have to say. They represent me. Okay? Now, when the Pharisees asked Jesus to show them a sign, Jesus said, and this is Matthew chapter... Turn there. Why don't you turn? We'll read it. It's only like four verses, but three verses, four, something. Let's just read it. Matthew 12, 39 through 41. So now we have Pharisees, which we all know, were the Pharisees ever really serious about hearing answers that Jesus was giving? Of course not. They saw him as a threat to their religious system that they were making money on, and he was destroying it, and so they're always looking when they ask questions for ways to trap him so that they could put him to death. So here the Pharisees asked Jesus to show them a sign. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now let's look at, listen to what I just said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you're wanting a sign from me, I'm going to give you the sign that God gave Jonah, and what he gave Jonah was really a foretelling of what uh, it was about me, Messiah. Again, pointing that God is in me. He's trying to help them understand. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment, and this generation, uh, with this generation, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Speaking of himself, Messiah. Okay? So Jesus was very clear that the purpose of a sign was so people would acknowledge God's message and respond accordingly. Likewise, if you turn, just go ahead and, and write it down. John chapter 4, verse 48. Jesus told the nobleman, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The signs were a help to those who struggled to believe, but the message of salvation in Christ was always his focus, not the gifts, not the signs, not the miracles, not the healings. The focus was those things were done to get them to lift their eyes, to look at him and listen to him and receive his message. Okay? Uh, by the way, I don't think that's ever changed. I think even today that's still the case. That's still the case. The message of salvation was outlined by Paul. Write this down, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 23. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 23. This is what Paul said of salvation. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now listen to what he said. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. So the Jews are looking for signs, but we, Paul said, preach Christ and Him crucified. We focus on the work of Christ on the cross. Because a person is not saved by seeing 
listen now, please hear me, or experiencing a gift, a sign, a miracle. That's not what saves anybody. If it, something like that does occur, and if it is of God, it's for one purpose. Listen, look at me. It's to turn people, Christians, towards uh, to look at Jesus and to take those who don't believe in Jesus, let them see a sign so they will lift their heads and look and listen to the gospel. It's always gospel-centered. Signs and wonders are gospel-centered. So if you see Christians who, who in their regular practice is using sign gifts, some even go to the point of saying and teaching that you have to speak in tongues in order, that's the initial physical evidence that you're spirit-filled, okay? Because in the early in, in, in the early church, when the church was being formed, God did at times, not always, use that when somebody was saved, it was followed by speaking in tongues. But interestingly enough, as we move into the epistles, out of the book of Acts, into Romans, and beyond, all the way to Revelation, I challenge you to look in there and find anywhere where Christians are using sign gifts. You won't find it. The apostles were the last ones that Jesus gave authority to use sign gifts for the purpose at that time of, a, of launching the church, getting people who don't know God, people, even Jews, who were uh, not believing in the work of Jesus to begin to consider Him. But once, here's what I believe. Now, again, with, with respect to those who use the gifts, I'm not going to ever go to them and say, what you're doing is just blasphemy, it's wrong. No, I'm going to respect them. They're my brothers and sisters. But I'm not going to let a culture that's created in certain circles determine what I do and don't do. I want the Bible to be my guide. And this is what I'm seeing in the Bible. So I show respect to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But personally, I'm not looking for a sign or a wonder. Why? Because I already believe, and that's why they were given, both Old and New Testament. So, I hope what you take away from this is that whatever you believe on this, I hope you can base it on Scripture. But don't just take a segment of Scripture and say, see, right here it is. Because I'll say to you, you're right. In that segment of Scripture, it's there. But don't you think if it was something to carry forward, it would be throughout the entire early church and all the letters that Paul wrote, he would address and talk about it? You say, well, he did in 1 Corinthians. Okay, what about that passage? Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. He clearly stated... Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
He went on to say in chapter 12 that I would rather you speak in an intelligible language when you come together as the body so that everyone can understand what you are saying. I remember going and hearing Jack Hayford at a conference way back in the 90s, no, 80s, 80s, a charismatic conference, and I went. I've always had such a great respect for Jack Hayford. He is a Bible student and recently passed away. Uh, he believed in the gifts up to this day. I, I probably, from Scripture, I can't see it all the way through, but he did. But I remember at that conference, they gave him the subject of glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues. He was to address this huge charismatic audience. I'm talking thousands of charismatics on the subject of glossolalia. And here's what he did. I, I'll never forget it. He came to the microphone and he said, this is the subject they've given me. And he's such a dignified voice, if you know who I'm talking about. And he said, so here's what I'm going to share with you today about glossolalia. I wish that everyone could speak in an unknown tongue, and no one ever knew it. And then he sat down. He was saying, I still believe that they're in operation, like a prayer language and things of that sort. But I think there's great abuse among our people. And he, above anybody, could say that to those people because they were his people. I wish that everybody spoke in tongues and no one knew it. So, again, I respect him greatly. His, his view was different than mine. Your view tonight might be different than mine. I respect you. I'll tell you what I respect most of all is when a person can justify what they believe from the Scripture. Because I promise you, if you ask me why I believe the way I do, I'm going to take you to the Bible. It's not my idea. It's not my thought. I don't have a vengeance against anybody or any group. So just wanted to throw that out there. There is one thing that's often overlooked in discussion about signs and miracles, and that is the timing and place of those in the Scripture. Again, just going back and review, Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, New Testament, Jesus, His apostles. And then we don't see in the early church, among the epistles, the church using sign gifts. It slows down to where going into, you say, okay, so now the question is, okay, so maybe we've made that identification, great, but why? Why wouldn't it go forward? Could it be because as the Bible comes to a close in Revelation, we now have everything we need in the Bible to believe in God. And the world has the Bible. And if we preach and proclaim the message of the Bible, those who the Holy Spirit is wooing to God will be saved. So back then, things were new, getting started. Apostles, they, people, the, the Christian Jews, they didn't know what the apostles were. The, but then they saw them with Jesus. And then they knew that Jesus gave them authority 
and they started respecting the apostle. And then it goes from apostles to pastors, teachers in the church. Things change. Pastors and teachers are for what purpose? To teach the Bible. So hopefully we've addressed that. I'm not saying that I have all the answers on it. I certainly don't. And I'm not saying that we've, uh, we've covered all the points of other people's views. We have not. So do your own research and study, but now you know where I stand on it and how I, how I view that, okay? Um, so, but, but in, in every instance, yes, yes, Ron. Believe that teaching is a gift. Mm-hmm. All, the, all those gifts are still in operation. The ones that I question, the ones that I question are the sign gifts. Yeah, yeah. But yes, faith, gift of faith, gift of administration, gift of helps, gift of serving, all of those are absolutely in operation. But you say, why? Why, do, why are they in operation? Because all through the uh, epistles, the church is using them. Absolutely. And pr pray with faith, believing that they might be made well. Amen. I don't believe that God's not healing today. I believe He still heals today. Now, I, I do question those who claim to be healers because of so much phonyism out there. So I don't know how to determine and discern between what is of God and what is of man. Man's pretty sly. And of course, it's Satan who gives man uh, techniques and things to do. And, uh, but anyway, yes, I believe that the gift... Thank you for that clarification. I do believe gifts are still working today just not those sign gifts. And if they do happen, I'm not going to say, that's not God, that's the devil. I'm going to have to say, I need to discern. Is that of the Lord? Why was that given? But I can pretty much tell you my position is that people in the church gathering so that they can experience a sign gift is not biblical. If you are saved, you don't need a sign gift. You already believe. You should have your nose in this. This becomes the focus of your life moving forward, not gifts. And I've got friends. Uh, I've had friends over the years. We're not so close anymore. Not that we're, we're still friends. If I saw them, we'd, we could sit down and have lunch and talk for two, three hours. They're still friends. I just don't, we're not in touch. But they live for the next experience. They go to church for an experience. In fact, they'll say to me, if they go to a church where there isn't an experience, they will say, man, the Spirit's not in that place. Because, Listen, I don't hold, I don't hold them in judgment because that's what they were taught. That's what they were taught. Always respect Christians who have opposing views. Learn to respect them as, as, as God's people. But you don't respect if something is not true according to the Word. But you also don't throw it in their face. So I don't fight back with them. They, they know my position. And now they don't talk to me about that because they know that we're in different places. But we're still friends. Make sense? The last thing I want to do is see people from Vero Bible Fellowship 
who would hold a similar position that I have. And all of our church does not. We've got people in our church who still believe sign gifts are happening today. You'll never hear me talk about them any different than I would anybody else. They are as much a part of our body as anyone else. Okay? All right. So, can we move to the next one? Okay. Our, I told you we wouldn't get through all these. We've only got 20 minutes, 20, yeah, 20 minutes left. My goodness. Okay. Uh, are Christians supposed to exercise demons today? I preached on this not too far back when we were in the book of Acts. So let me just give you a, a brief summary. In Acts 19.13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits by saying this, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Those who did that were the seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was a Jewish uh, chief priest. His seven sons went out casting out demons. Now, I will tell you, I see that differently. I think it's demonic, what they were doing. And then when they did see Paul cast out demons, which was of God, they tried to mimic Paul. And here's the response of the evil spirit when they tried to cast him out. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, seven sons, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <laughs> so so uh, here's the point. Um, when you see that story, that's an example of exorcism. An exorcism is when someone is doing battle with the demon or demons inside a body. And in the Catholic Church, they exercise demons. They go into battle. You've seen you know, and heard stories about that and how long it takes and the struggle and all. And I've got to tell you, when I was a young man, I was part of one of those experiences. The demon wasn't in me, by the way. Uh, but I was there to minister because I didn't know better. And boy, did I have my eyes opened. And it put me back in the Word of God to study. So let me explain to you what I believe the Bible says because, again, this question, what was the question? How did we state it? Or how did that person state it? Let me look and see. I uh, turned the page there. Uh, are Christians supposed to exercise demons today? In the Bible, other than the seven sons of Sceva, we do not have, and they weren't Christians, but among the Christian brothers and sisters, including Jesus and the apostles, not once did they ever try to exercise demons. What they did, it started with Jesus. Jesus had authority from the Father to see a man with a demon or a woman with a demon and speak to the demon, and immediately the demon came out because he had authority. When Jesus was ready to send his disciples out by twos to teach them about ministry because soon he was going to leave 
and the Holy Spirit would come and, and fill them, and they would be the ministers. They would be the leaders of the early church in the initial days before the pastors and apostles were, or pastors and teachers were given. It says that he gave them authority to cast out demons. The, the, the apostles did not struggle to cast out demons. There was only one time when they struggled. And Jesus said, this type only comes out by prayer and fasting. So just because I've given you authority doesn't mean that you're home free and clear. Just use the words like they're magical words. You still need to be prayed up. You still need to be spiritually ready. But what will cause them to come out will not be you battling against Satan for 12 hours or 36 hours, and then all of a sudden the demon comes out. No, you will speak it and they will leave. So Jesus did not exercise demons. Jesus, on his authority, he cast them out, and they immediately obeyed. Same with the apostles. So there's the difference. As Christo, if, if, if Jesus didn't exercise demons, if the apostles didn't exercise demons, if we don't have examples in the early church all the way to Revelation that they cast out demons, what are we to draw from that? Today, we aren't to cast out demons. You say, well, wait a minute. What about spiritual warfare? Ephesians chapter 6, right? That was given to the church. What did Paul tell the church? Well, let me tell you what he told them. He said, we're to put on the whole armor of God and stand against demonic forces. He told them to resist the devil in James, and he will flee from you. He told them, be careful of the enemy in 1 Peter. Be careful, be wise, because he's scrupulous, okay? And not to give him room in our lives, Ephesians chapter 4. Don't give Satan any room in your life. Out of all that instruction in chapter 6, which is all about warfare, Paul teaching the early church, nothing about exercising demons. You have the Word. Jesus gave the apostles the Word of God. They proclaimed it. It's written in the Scripture. Quote the Bible. And by the way, how did Jesus fight off Satan in the wilderness for 40, after 40 days? It is written, the Word of God. So we don't need to be doing battle and, oh my gosh, I've got to have Pastor Greg come and anoint my house because there's demons in it. No, you need to take a stand. You need to resist the enemy. You stand on the truth of God's Word. Satan can't overpower the Word of God. He can't overpower the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. But see, it's fear that drives Christians to think, I've got to get help on this, I can't do it. Paul didn't say, go get your brothers to do it for you. He said, you do this, you stand, you put on the whole armor, you resist the devil, you be careful. You, you don't give, any, give the devil any place in your life, okay? So uh, that's probably all we'll, we'll say there on that particular question. Uh, here at the end, we might cover one more, two more maybe quickly, and then we'll come back and do Q&A. And any of these that you have questions, feel free to ask. Uh, here's another question that was asked. What does the Bible say about cremation? Is it wrong for Christians to cremate bodies or to have their body cremated? 
Um, the Bible doesn't give any specific instruction about cremation. But there are some occurrences in the Old Testament where bodies were burned, where bones were burned. And, uh, uh, and, and also, that doesn't mean that those were examples of cremation. One, they actually put the bones on the altar and burned them. And God did not respond well to that, okay? Uh, he, he said they desecrated. That doesn't mean that you can't cremate. There's no command in Scripture that says you have to put the body in a cave. You have to put the body in a tomb. You've got to bury the body in the ground hole. It doesn't say that. That was the custom of that day, but the Bible does not speak specifically on that. So, is cremation something a Christian can consider? Absolutely. There's no explicit scripture command about cremation. Some believers will object to being cremated because on the basis that if they are completely cremated, then how will their body be raised when Jesus returns? Okay, let me ask you this question. What about somebody who died um, in the Old Testament times, 4,000, 5,000 years ago? Do you think there's any bones left? Totally disintegrated. What does Ecclesiastes 3 say? We come from the dust and we will return to the dust. If God created your body, do you recreating your body at all? So what about, you know, people who die at sea, you know? Maybe a shark eats their body and the acids of the shark completely disintegrate the bones and they're just a little poo-poo on the ocean floor, you know? And then the wave or the, the current hits it and you're gone. How's God going to raise them? I have a problem. So do not think that there's some place in the scripture that speaks against cremation. It does not. But likewise, the Bible doesn't tell us any command of how to dispose of a body. It doesn't. There's no command. Okay? We have examples, and that's all it is. Okay, um, let's see if we can cover another. What attributes of God did Jesus empty himself of when he became a man? That's a great question. Remember when Jesus was incarnate uh, and Philippians said, Paul said that he emptied himself. What does that mean? What did he empty himself of? Uh, well, the term for emptying self Self-emptying is kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. And it's a reference to the incarnation. It comes from the Greek, and it says that Jesus, in Philippians, it says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. But notice in that verse, it doesn't say anything specifically about what he emptied himself of. So now, here's where we have to be careful. A lot of people have jumped to the conclusion that he emptied himself of his deity so that he could be human. But wait a minute. 
the Bible says he was fully God and fully man at the same time. Listen to me. We have no indication that Jesus emptied himself of any attribute of God. He still had full attributes of God because he's fully God. But what does it mean then to empty self? It means, look at it this way, that he took those attributes, the deity, and he just set it aside. It's still in him, it's still him, but he chose not to use it. I'm fully God, but I'm not going to function as fully God. I want to function as a man. So that, so much so that he was able to experience heartache. He was able to experience loss with Lazarus. He was able to experience hunger, thirst. Wait a minute. He's still God, but he set it aside so that he could identify as fully man. Does that make sense? I'm sorry? Yeah, he took on the form of man, but you still have God inside. Amen? Okay. Uh, let's see if we can cover maybe one more here. Uh, when and where is the kingdom of heaven? Let me also just clarify real quick, even though that question wasn't asked. Is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Have you ever wondered that? Uh, I know when I was a young man, I used to wonder that. Um, there is zero difference. Um, so why both? Well, the reference for the kingdom of heaven is used by Matthew in his gospel. And he was writing that gospel to who? The Jews. The Jews knew from the Old Testament prophecy that Messiah would come and would establish an earthly kingdom. So he knew that by using the word kingdom of heaven, that they would understand God coming here and establishing a kingdom. The problem is, Jesus wasn't establishing that earthly kingdom in His, in his uh, uh, first coming. In His first coming, He came as a humble servant, right? That really caught the Jews off guard. They couldn't see Him as God because you're just nothing but a servant. They were looking for a king to rule over the Jews and to deal with the Romans who had occupied Jewish land. And so Jesus didn't come for that reason the first time. His second coming, He will come to establish His earthly reign. But let's get back to the question, when and where is the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. He then goes on to describe the kingdom of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven for the believer is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You can experience the kingdom of heaven here on earth inside of you. The Beatitudes are all about helping us understand the right attitude, the right approach to living as subjects of the king right now. You don't wait until you go to heaven to be in the kingdom. If you're saved, you're in the kingdom of heaven now. Okay? Yet, there is a future kingdom to be established. 
on earth after the second coming of Christ. Does that help anybody? So uh, the next question, is it biblical to ask the Spirit to enter this place or come into this room when the Spirit is already indwelling the believers? I think the, the question answers itself. Um, if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and by the way, if you're saved, He doesn't come and go. Exactly, you're sealed. You, 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 you fall short, you, you have a bad attitude, you lash out with wor words that are uh, filled with vitriol. Um, you don't lose your salvation over that. The Holy Spirit doesn't go, well, I'm out of here. You're still filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we gather together, there's nothing wrong with inviting the Spirit to open our minds to understand, like we did tonight, what we're going to be studying. That's one of the works of the Spirit inside of us, is to teach us all things, to bring to remembrance what Jesus said, to lead us into truth, and the truth will set you free. So, but you're not saying when you say we're inviting Him to guide us, we're not saying come into the room so you can guide us. He's already in you, so He's here. It's just that we're aligning ourselves, we're thinking, Lord, now I want to surrender and submit to the Holy Spirit in this moment as I, as I study the Word of God. Illuminate my heart to understand what I'm going to be reading tonight. That's a good thing. But you don't need to invite Him to come. You don't. He's present. Now, for the unbeliever, should they pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come? Um, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is very clear. The Holy Spirit's work is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The only work an unbeliever ought to be concerned with is listening for the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment and get saved. Until He saves them, there's no reason to be asking Him for anything because He's not in you. You need to be saved. Let the Spirit regenerate you. Now He's in you. Now you have access to the work that He longs to do in the heart of every believer. Make sense? Okay. Uh, let's stop there. Any questions? Q&A just for a second. If anybody has any, if not, we're fine. We'll go back to eating some food. Oh, by the way, I, I've got a listing here. And I, remind me, and I'll come back next week and hit it, because I took time to write it down. Uh, I've, I've, I've got 10, 10 purposes of the indwelling spirit in a believer's life. 10 purposes. I'd like to give those to you, but we don't have time. So we'll come back next week. I'm going to pick up right there. Um, any questions? No? Yes, Ron? Can you That's right. Yeah. Why would he tell us to stand firm if we're, I mean, he doesn't want you to live in fear. For the Spirit of the Lord, what? He gives you fear. He gives you love, power, and a sound mind. Stand on the Word of God. Stand firm. Now, now, let me say this. There is something to be said in James 1.7 that when we sense the presence of the enemy, 
flee. You don't, and what he's speaking specifically of is sexual sin. This is one that, well, I remember when my pastor, I went and met with him after I felt a calling to pastoral ministry. And here's what he said to me. The one thing you have to guard against the most is sexual temptation because Satan will come to you with that. And in that situation, you don't stand firm. When some woman's coming and she's trying to sweet talk and get in your ear, that's not the time to sit there and listen. Flee. Get out of there. Like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. He didn't stay around. Here, honey, come sit on the bed. You're, you're a married woman. Come sit on the bed. Let me explain to you why I can't be with you. Oh, no. It says he fled, got out of there. So that, that is an example where, but it's not driven. I'm not fleeing out of fear. I'm fleeing out of obedience. My God tells me to, to, to flee. I'm just being obedient. Sexual sin defiles the temple. Yes. Other sins are outside the yeah, you're sinning against yourself. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else? Well, it's good to be together. I hope this was not boring for you because it's so different from what we normally do. Um, and again, tonight, if you have a question, write it down, give it to me. I'll try to come back next week and address it because we, we worked through quite a bit of the questions. Maybe we're one or two left and that's it. And it won't take all next week. So I'm looking for some more this week or email deb at info at uh, info at Give her the question. Tell her to give it to me. She will. Okay. God bless you, church.